0: Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. As you can see, I'm in my hotel room. Uh, I have no idea what the quality of this is going to be because I can't vouch for the internet here, but I will do my best. Today is June 19th, 2015. That means today is what? It's Kimbo Shamrock, y'all. and I'm here in St. Louis uh, try to bring you as much coverage as I can of this what do you want to call it, cultural event? So whatever the case that it may be. um, We'll talk about that fight today. Bellator 138's entire card. Michael Chandler returns against Derek Campos. Henry Corrales will probably give Daniel Strauss a very tough fight. Uh, And then, of course, Patricio Freire taking on Daniel Weishel, Bobby Lashley against Dan Charles, and so forth. So we'll get to all that card and what it all means and, and everything else. Tomorrow, Ioanni and Jacek taking on Jessica Penny at UFC Berlin, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night 69. People are still digesting what happened with UFC 188, so a lot to get to, and I appreciate everyone being here and submitting questions. One quick note, this chat is only going to go an hour today, I know we normally go an hour and a half, and I know what you're saying, you're saying, Luke, there was no Monday morning analyst, what happened? Luke, the live chat wasn't on Wednesday, it's now on Friday, and now you're telling me it's only an hour as opposed to an hour and a half, I know, I'm sorry. But I normally don't travel, and when I do, it just gets in the way of all the stuff that I normally bring to you. But at least I'm still doing it. At least I'm still here. At least we still have um, a chat to do. Without further ado, I have no soda today, just water. Mm. And I can't tell if I'm getting sick, or allergies, or both. I don't know. Also, it's been raining every single day here in St. Louis, um, which has made this visiting the city virtually impossible. That, in addition to work, of course, but uh, whatever the case may be. Okay, let's get to these questions, shall we? First one up, altitude. Yeah, UFC 188. Luke, I loved UFC 188, and the crowd was awesome. But do you think with the altitude hindering the fights and the fighters' performance, the UFC might think twice about holding certain events in Mexico. Um, well, the cat's out of that bag a little bit. Toothpaste is out of that tube. There's no going back at this point. Now there may be ways in which they try to adjust for it, um, booking fewer heavyweights on the Mexico card. Obviously, that's not going to be that possible with Kane Velasquez as your former champ, but you're still your probably your top Mexican draw still. So he's still going to want to compete there on some degree. Uh, but, but that's going to be interesting for him, too, because if you're Kenny Velasquez, do you really want to go back and compete in, in Mexico City? I don't know that you do. But whatever the case may be, um, they might have more lightweight performers there. And when I say lightweight, I mean you know, 170, 155, and down, guys who might be a little bit less susceptible to the effects of, of that. Um, as you know, they're already going to Monterey. They might visit other places that are not quite so high up um what they might start doing and some boxing promoters do this they might start paying for guys to be able to go over there and train like they i don't know if kane Velazquez would need it necessarily but you know if they wanted i don't know yaya rodriguez or somebody else to go there and train in high altitude they might be able to supplement the cost of training camp to then not make that a concern so there's a few things they can do but abandoning the market is just not possible mexico city has everything you could want. It's not too far to travel to. It's got a great modern arena. It's got a growing, uh, market. Um, it's got, you, 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 have a growing legion of Latino fighters that you can bring there. Many of them speak fluent Spanish. The idea of just moving on from Mexico city is just not tenable. Plus where are you going to go? As I mentioned before, there are other South American cities that, um, you know that have you know maybe not quite the extent of mexico city although some get higher peru has some higher cities colombia has some higher cities but there's a lot of sort of mountainous region cities um along the western side of of uh south america and spanish-speaking parts of south america so if you really want to get into those territories this is not something you can altogether avoid sucks but that's the world we live in y'all quite literally uh, all right verdum versus jds if next with verdum improving leaps and bounds and JDS not looking the killer he was in his last fight coming from surgery. Who do you got? It is hard to pick against Verdum at this point, right? It has to be. Um, just not the same guy. Uh, much more defensively responsible. Um, more ways to win. Uh, obviously, Junior Dos Santos' takedown defense is really good. But, um, you know, I don't think Verdum relies on his jiu-jitsu in any kind of real way. He lets, he lets the submissions come to him, like the double leg from Kane, right? That came to him. Um, if you take him down, he, he actually got back up once. He didn't even try to play guard. So, like, when I talked about his guard, like, a lot of times we talk about guys with good guards, and we say, man, look what he's doing. He's going from triangle to armbar to omoplata, and he's got this, you know, sequence of events, and he's, he's sweeping guys. But part of, I think, Verdum's brilliance is that he doesn't always try to force the guard. Like when he feels he can use it he does and if you look at the case of the guillotine he had that was a guillotine secured by the guard right i mean it was just the legs clamped around the the, the sides of velasquez but the timing of that knowing when to apply it how to apply it these are not automatic things they're not the most difficult things in the world but they're not automatic either you have to learn how to do them and so i guess what i mean is it's just a really efficient use of the guard um both from a control standpoint and also from you know the submissions themselves you know launching your hips for a triangle or or whatever the case may be for has got an incredible guard when it comes to stuff like that so um so there's that but i guess uh i think that the real thing i would point to it would be different is that you know Verdoom if he's going to pop him at range that might be there although jds has a pretty good jab too i think the difference would be in close range you know um Velasquez was able to... We talked about it before. Velasquez is able to dig an underhook on one side and then start bombing you with the other. And that was a big part of what went wrong for Junior Dos Santos against Velasquez. I'm thinking if you're Verdum at this point, he's going to be able to lock up a clinch and take away a lot of what you're doing. And at this point, JDS is... I mean, you know, all the wars he has been through. Tremendous toll on his body. Someone like Verdum, who's huge, who can fire knees deep up inside the clinch, to the body, to the face, all over, who can twist and turn and lean and lay on you. I, I feel like that would much more favor him at this point. I, I don't think a submission would be the most likely thing um, in that particular context, although one never knows. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't see how you don't favor Verdum at this point. Yair yeah, Rodriguez. Boy, a lot of questions about... Friggin' 188. What did you make of him, and what kind of potential does he have? I kind of talked about this, um, or maybe I didn't. I guess I didn't, actually. Um, Yeah, I think he has a ton of potential. Obviously, you know, um, moving to the United States, training with the right wrestling coaches, um, getting the kind of, you know, there's just going to be an enduring problem for some of these guys, and that's the lack of wrestling. People have asked me, like, when are these countries going to turn into these powerhouses? And my answer to that is whenever there are world-class camps there, because you can have a world-class fighter who you take out of a country and put in another place, and then they can either go back to that country years later, or they can, you know, represent them while they live abroad or someplace else. You see that with a lot of Dagestani guys, right? They come in with a lot of raw ability, but it's not until they get to the AKA where they really turn that corner to sort of elite ranks, up to some exception, I suppose. Um, and, you know, look... In South America, the wrestling is bad to non-existent. You know, it's just not there. Some exceptions here or there. I'll say the Colombian guy, for example, Freddie Serrano, he can wrestle, you know. But um, and there's there's, you know, there's some guys in Mexico who can wrestle and, and Rodriguez showed, showed good takedown defense for the most part, although that kind of got bad as the fight went on. But I guess what I'm saying is this is gonna be an enduring problem for all these guys. I think what you're gonna wait to see is that like when world-class camps are there where guys who live there, train there, come out of there and become championship fighters or championship contender fighters. That's really sort of what I'm looking for. And so I think what Rodriguez is realizing is that's just not the case in Mexico right now. Going to the United States to get it. He speaks English. He speaks Spanish. Um, you know, got a good look. Uh, an exciting fighting style. So I think, you know, he's a little bit reckless still. And I wouldn't, I think what Greg Jackson's probably going to do is the same thing he did with John Jones, which is try to not completely dull that instinct, while at the same time keeping him out of trouble from the more reckless side of things. Um, but if he can keep that creativity and that spontaneity, but maybe a little bit more defensively, um, purposeful, he's going to have a bright future. Here we go. Perfect question. Verdum's clinch. Kane seemed to have problems with Verdum's clinch in the fight, which in my opinion nullified the majority of takedowns for Kane. Am I crazy noticing this during the fight or did you see it too? I don't think it had much to do with, um, the takedowns because once you're there, you're getting so forced. You... If someone has a clinch on you, you can still get taken down, Like They can just body lock you and lift you and turn you depending on how how good you are. You can get tripped, right? Uh, It it all really depends. It depends on how you fight the clinch. It depends on how uh, they apply the clinch. So, but it's not that that I I don't look at the takedowns. We know if I don't think that, I don't think that Kane was that hungry for them necessarily in that space. Also, you can just level change, you know, depending on how things go. Part of, part of fighting off the clinch is reasserting your posture. Right, because they're trying to trying to clamp you down, and what you're trying to do is trying to reassert it. That's not the same as diving in on someone's legs or looking for a trip or or reaching for a single or whatever the case may be. So it's less about that. I'm not saying it has nothing to do with that, but it's less about that. For more it, for me, it's just that wears on you physically. Remember, we talked about wrestlers. You know, you always see him yank on the head and the back of the neck, and they're always pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling when they're hand fighting because it it wears you out, man. It wears your opponent out. The clinch is sort of the same thing. Um, I also think that Velasquez probably thought he was safe in there because that's the space he usually likes to operate. Again, one underhook, one open hand. That's kind of what he likes to do. So for me, it was just he was getting controlled, turned, off-balanced, not really able to get his feet going and his offense going there, getting beat up while he was in there. And then I think he was a bit too comfortable with the idea that that was a space he could work in. Um, but the takedowns for me, its I don't think anyone would ever say that if Velasquez didn't want to take Verdum down, he couldn't. You know, He could do that at any point he wants to. There might be consequences after the fact, as we saw. But it's not like... Um, I was talking to King Mo yesterday. What he was saying was what Verdum will do in practice a lot, because I think Verdum trained with him for like a year and a half. And what he was telling me was what Verdum will do is... Um, he'll fight you a little bit on the takedown. Like, you know, if you try to take him down, he'll try to dig an underhook, you know, whatever the case may be. He'll give you a little bit of pushback, but eventually he's not going to waste his energy. Um, And if you're really determined to get the takedown and if you really want it, he'll just give it to you. At that point, he'll start working his guard or he'll have a submission in transition and catch you with a guillotine going down or something like that. But he's not going to waste a lot of energy fighting off a takedown. And so I think if Velasquez really wanted it, they were always basically there. It's just that... um, he just made some errors, and he made, you know, obviously we know about the preparation issues and and everything else like that. Let's see. Gilbert Melendez's decline. Melendez is now 1-3 in the UFC and only a win over unranked Diego, Diego Sanchez. Despite his losses in the UFC being closer competitive, is he on the decline? Or is it more of the case that he hasn't evolved in the last five years, and the game is passing him by? Well, time for some context here, a little bit. I think one, I scored the fight for Melendez over Henderson, and if he wins that, who knows how different MMA looks today? And you know, the fact that I scored it doesn't change reality. I just think that you know that loss has a, in my mind, a giant asterisk next to it. Second, as you mentioned, he beat Diego Sanchez in a fight where he. You know, I'm not saying he carried Diego, but I don't know that that was peak Melendez on purpose. And I would say the the losses to Pettis are bad, and then the loss here is reasonably bad. Um, but more context is needed. Look, he was doing well in the first round against Pettis, and then Pettis did what I think he's really best at, which is catching you, forcing you uh, with a punch or a strike, forcing you into bad decision-making, and then hopping on a submission. And he got caught there. Okay, cool. He just got beat there. Um... Against Alvarez, credit to Alvarez's just gritty fight. Um, who, by the way, he trained at sea level too. You know, so I'm telling you, altitude affects people differently. But um, you know, just sort of like waning in that second or third round. I think it's pretty clear to say that I don't, I do not believe Melendez is in his prime. But the question is, how subprime is he? I think that is still very much in debate. Are we at, is this the very best Gilbert Melendez we've ever seen? No, I don't think so. He started MMA early. He's been in the game for over 10 years. You know, naturally the game is going to wear on you. Training is going to wear on you. Fights are going to wear on you. Um, you know, I think he's a father now and, you know, your, your life and your priorities change and that changes your mental focus and, and everything else. I'm not saying he's not working hard, but, you know, look, life gets in the way of things and that's just sort of a natural, you know, um, trajectory that things take but um but sure i think this fight against ally quinta people were telling i i I was on 120 sports yesterday and i was saying that these fights are super risky like when a guy fights and loses and it's close but it's weird because the guy who lost basically didn't look like themselves you are in uriah hall perfect case right the fight didn't go through because of visa issues but you saw it there too what they do is they often want to take a fight right away with a short camp because they say i'm already in shape or i'm close to in shape and I just keep going, and, and I, I can wash the taste of my mouth. Ally like Quint is a guy on the rise. If Melendez beats him, he might, you know, quell some of this um, uprising about his, about his, you know, whether the game is passing him by. And so I think that's super risky, though, man. I think it's really risky. I think if you lost a fight because of inadequate preparation, which isn't to say that he didn't train hard, but he didn't train appropriately given the circumstances, and then to just... Jump into another fight with a guy who is getting better each and every time we see him. Who, no, is not maybe quite the wrestler that Melendez is. But we saw Melendez fade in the last one. Um, you know, he got caught in the second round against Pettis. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's not early he's getting caught. It's after a couple of rounds or so. For me, a guy like Quinta who can come on strong at the end. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying I wouldn't favor Melendez still because of all of his resume and, and what I think I think he's still capable of doing but what I think we all have to acknowledge is the very best Gilbert Melendez is probably not there anymore. A very, very good one still is, but the question is what level of very good do we have? And to that, I don't think we we have a very clear answer. Do you see anything in Penne's game that could potentially trouble Joani and Jacek? Well, look, um, yes and no. Uh, So on the one hand, if they decide to bang it out on the feet, seems like you just, uh, there's not a lot to say about that. Even Carla Esparza, you know, got the best of of Penny on the fight because, on the ultimate fighter, because she just didn't move her head and just kept getting chewed up with the right over and over and over again. Now, uh, I've been told by some people who know her that that's a function of her not having her camp with her, but even for this fight, you know, she was with Rain Training Center and that got sort of pushed aside, and so I think she's partly with Alliance and some other folks, so maybe we'll have the same issues with that again. So on the feet, I'm just going to favor Ian Jacek. Obviously, her takedown defense is pretty phenomenal. But what I would say is, look, MMA is crazy. Look what happened with Lyoto Machida. Partly that he got tripped, partly he slipped. Um, on the ground, to the extent that Ian Jacek is either forced to or decides to accommodate Penny's grappling, she's going to get eaten alive. On the mat... In terms of jujitsu, Penny is fin- like categorically better. Now, again, that's assuming she either decides to accommodate Penny's grappling, meaning I'm just going to stay here and out grapple you, or I'm going to work within your guard by choice. I could stand up, but I'm not going to. Or if Penny somehow, I don't know, gets mount and then from a slip and then works, I don't know, crazy things happen in MMA and then works. From the back you know that's that that to me would be um you know mount and the back are obviously advantageous positions but it's even worse when someone who is much better at grappling than you is you know in the dominant positions in those scenarios so to me that's the difference but you then that always just sort of raises the question about well how likely are those scenarios they seem fairly unlikely but you know look man you know, I spent I spent the last few years being like Arlovsky has no chance, or how many of you thought Verdoom had no chance against Kane? And he goes in there and doesn't just beat him, but beats him handily. You know, yeah, altitude and yeah, layoff and all that stuff. But there's there's technical reasons why he lost too, even when he was fresh. So to me, it's like, look, do I see, do I see an obvious case for Penny? No, and I like her a lot, man. I have a ton of respect for her. I I I I always like um, you know, you know, you guys know I'm a little bit partial to the grapplers there. And, and she's phenomenal in that regard. And I met her at a glory show once. She could not have been more friendly, and, and she was cool. So I'm hoping for a competitive fight. And if she wins, you know, that's cool. But just realistically speaking, based on what we know, not a lot of reasons to think that this is a, a favorable matchup for her. But you all know it's a crazy-ass sport and anything can happen. Uh, okay. Ben Henderson title run. Considering the current state of the lightweight division, do you see a title run being possible for Ben Henderson? No. I don't think he can beat Dos Anjos. I don't. We know he can't. I mean, well, no. Seems unlikely he can beat Pettis, given two fights where he couldn't do it. I don't think he beats Nurmagomedov. So, uh, again, it's a crazy sport. Anything can happen. But the two guys, two of the three guys at the top of the division, he's already faced and lost. And maybe he can give... Nurmagomedov, a tougher fight because he can really negate the wrestling, but um, I have a hard time seeing that. I think Nurmagomedov's wrestling is just on another completely different level than everyone else, and I think that it was a consequence. Only like Ben Henderson's in a bit of a tough position about what he wants to do, you know, and where he can go, so um, I thought it was phenomenal what he did at 170 against Brandon Thatch. Just a truly remarkable performance, and the guy is such a incredible, incredible um, fighter with a uh, it, you can't even talk about how much um, will he has. It, there's uh, there's no words for it in, in, in any language known to man. But will is not what wins fights typically. It's usually skills. I think in that department, while he is formidable, there's just a couple of guys out there, or a few guys that have a few ticks more than him, uh, that are going to make that difficult for him. Which matchups do you prefer, Verdum versus Dos Santos or Dos Santos versus Overeem? Well, if we're just talking, let's say, fun, I think Dos Santos versus Overeem would be more fun. But obviously Dos Santos versus Verdum has more stakes. Verdum versus Miocic or Verdum versus Arlovsky? For fun, I would say Arlovsky. And then Velasquez versus Miocic or Velazquez versus Rothwell. Definitely Velazquez versus Miocic. We've seen Velasquez versus Rothwell. Maybe it's different a second time. Hard to see why, necessarily. Miocic is a formidable talent. He can wrestle. He can strike. Um, He has a good jab. I think straight punches give Velasquez a problem. You saw Verdum half-stepping forward, half-stepping back, popping the jab, popping the jab one-two. And, you know, the hooks, the hooking shots of Velasquez couldn't quite get through to the same extent. He kept getting timed on his movement side-to-side. You know, So for me, um, Miocic can respond to Velasquez in ways that could potentially give him problems. Someone says, a super fight consisting of Verdun versus Daniel Cormier. It would be the first real super fight containing a heavyweight and light heavyweight champ. DC would hype the fight, and he is... A more pay-per-view worthy attraction than Arlovsky and Stipe and maybe even JDS. It's debatable. He would avenge his teammates' loss. What do you think? Is the idea of a super fight old and uninteresting nowadays? Well, it's not it's not uninteresting. Like someone was asking me this. Someone said, What if John Jones comes back to MMA? Would you want to see him in the heavyweight division? And my response would be relatively similar to the one I gave Daniel for, for one I will give now for Daniel Cormier, which is um, well, of course you would want to see John Jones fight Velasquez or John Jones fight Dos Santos or Verdum, even, or wh- whatever, you know. Of course you would want to see these things because it would be novel and interesting and maybe in some ways revelatory or, or whatever. It'd be fun, you know. But at the same time, with Verdum changing the landscape now of heavyweight, it seems like an unnecessary, maybe even gratuitous step in the wrong direction. I think what we're all looking for is something more along the lines of, um, let's solve the actual title contendership queue issue. And then if there's room, we'll have a super fight, but not one before the other. That would be a mistake. So with Cormier, look, Cormier's got his hands full at light heavyweight for now. I know the, you know, the Gustafson matchup is weird and Bader's and all that interesting, but I don't know how the John, John Jones John Jones is going to be out forever. We'll see how that goes. You want him around in the event that Cormier wins that. And irrespective of that, heavyweight needs to resolve its own issues before Cormier returns to it as, you know, the reigning defending champion of the light heavyweight division. Cain Velasquez return. Who would you match him up against upon his return? Would you like to see him fight a few times before he earns another title shot? Um... You know, I don't know what they're going to do. There's a lot of different possibilities for him. You know, what's kind of funny to me is that there is not much talk of um, a rematch against Verdun. Now, I'm not going to lobby for one. I'm not here to tell you that that's the fight I want to see. But what I guess I would say, let me just make sure the quality here is okay. Um. Okay. Let's see. I would say that um, the, look, people are saying fights against Rothwell could be fun. I mentioned before the Miocic fight could be fun, but Miocic is coming off a win. Do you really want to put up a guy against a win versus a loss? But then again, Cormier is the, or excuse me, Velasquez is what was the reigning champion. Um, I think the bigger issue for me is look, you can make any of those fights, and they all have their own kind of appeal. Rothwell less so because it's a rematch, but it might be the appropriate tune-up fight for Velasquez. But I think that's my larger point. I know we don't do it in MMA, but I think it's crazy. A guy's out 20 months, going to high altitude. You know, I don't know why he's defending his title. And you could say, well, well, why wouldn't he? And I'm thinking to myself, um, tuna fights happen in boxing for a reason. Yeah, okay, the IBF junior welterweight title is not as meaningful as a UFC heavyweight title. Fair enough. I'm not saying that they are. But... Those guys need the practice to get back in there that they're not going to get just sparring in the gym. 20 months is an insane amount of time to be gone. So, for me, the ideal scenario would have been Velazquez versus some very manageable task at heavyweight for a non title fight as a co main event on the card, and then going back and fighting for his title after that. I know we're way past that point, but I just want to make that clear. And you can argue and say, well, we'll do this and it would do that. Fine, it would do all those things. Um, but at least it would give him a chance to compete on equal footing, right? Which he did not get. A 20-month layoff is nuts. It is nuts. And I know Dominic Cruz came out and looked... <coughs> pardon me. Phenomenal. After, you know, three years. That is such an aberrant thing and a testament to his unreal greatness. But it's not a common occurrence. It's not. This is not how things typically go. The way things went for Velasquez is the way things typically go when you're coming off that kind of a layoff. So um, someone said to me the other day, what about Cain Velasquez versus Derek Lewis, the Black Beast? I wouldn't be opposed to that. I see people talking about Frank Mir. Frank Mir's got his hands full with Todd Duffy. Let's see how that goes. But there are any number of different possibilities that would be perfectly willing to entertain. I'm not so hung up on a particular matchup for him because I think what's inevitable is that folks are going to want to see him versus Verdum again at sea level and see what that does to the fight. So I'm not saying the UFC should make the fights too easy or too hard, but I think most of the tasks outside of Verdum are pretty manageable for Velasquez. He doesn't necessarily have a heated rivalry with any of them. A lot of them could be fun or easy to sell or downright meaningful. I'm not hung up on one particular fight over the other. Is BJ Penn still the greatest lightweight? Would prime BJ Penn beat Dos Anjos, Pettis, Ben Henderson, Melendez, and Habib? Look, here's what I would say about BJ Penn being the greatest lightweight of all time. First of all, it's like every other greatest of all time title, it's up for grabs. Two, um, you know, the game is different now than it was when BJ was in it. I think what what keeps BJ in the conversation of greatest, again, it's, and, and I think this is partly overstated in the case of BJ. Part of what made BJ great was that he was for a while, I don't think he had a tremendous amount of success at welterweight. In fact, very little. But he had just enough to at least create the image. And he was a guy who could do things in two divisions. Um, it, his, his ability was in his prime, top of the food chain, no issues. He had an iron chin. He never got cut. He had unbreakable takedown defense. Better jiu-jitsu than anyone. And he had heavy hands. Like He was just built for that. The game is different now. Guys are coming. They're a little bit quicker, a little bit better wrestlers. The wrestling game is tremendously improved. So the question to me is not whether Penn could beat these guys. I don't know, you know. I mean, as I know in, I know in basketball, we're having this conversation about LeBron versus MJ or Kobe versus MJ, and it's a little bit more apples to apples because, yes, the game has changed since then. LeBron is bigger, for example, than MJ. But um, it's still the game doesn't evolve in that same kind of, away as our game is radically changing generationally. So for me, I think the question is um, who can have sustained dominance at lightweight to take the title from BJ Penn, not could BJ Penn beat these guys? Maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. He could, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. He could beat Pettis for sure. Dos Anjos, I don't know. Henderson, I don't know. Melendez, probably. Habib, probably not. Uh, Or maybe he could. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. But to me, what I'm looking to see is who can reign over their contemporaries in a way that BJ did. Um, So we'll see. you think if Conor loses to Aldo, he'll never win a UFC title? I wouldn't say that. I'm going to keep talking about this with Conor McGregor until, you know, folks recognize it. It's not that, look, if he beats Aldo, then he gets the title. But let's say he doesn't. Let's say he loses in the third round via TKO or something, leg kicks. I don't know. Just making up something. Um, we still don't know. We have no idea how he'll do against wrestlers like Chad Mendez or Frankie Edgar or uh, Ricardo Lamas. And you could say, well, I favor him to beat all those guys except maybe Mendes. And, and maybe even then I favor him to beat Mendez, And that's fine. But there is still a lot, a lot of unknowns about Conor McGregor again, and I've said it before, I'll say it again, that does not mean he can't beat those guys or won't beat those guys. He might go in and walk all over them, but until he does, he'll deal with sustained wrestling pressure from guys who know how to do it really well. We just don't know. You don't know, and neither do I. Could be great, could be bad, could be some kind of mix in between. So that's sort of what I'm looking for. Um, but to be like, well, he'll never win the title if, if if he loses to Aldo. Maybe Aldo moves up to lightweight. Maybe he has to face those guys. Maybe he beats all of them. Trying to figure out what Conor McGregor can do is part part of the issue with him heading even into the Aldo fight is that we still a lot of unknowns left. Still a lot of unknowns left. Still he's facing the greatest featherweight of all time, and maybe he goes in there and puts it on him. You know, seems entirely possible, but. Um, even then, I think in that fight, we're going to learn something both positive and negative about him that will reshape our understanding of him a little bit. It always is the case. Every time you see a fight, particularly one of this magnitude and then one of this stakes and one of these kind of interesting style matchup, you learn something new about the other person. You learn you learn what makes them tick and what made things work and what things they just don't see and what things they can easily correct for that will have you know major ramifications in their game. Um, but we're at a stage now with Conor McGregor where we have a lot of good information but we have a, a lot of questions left so I don't really know about Conor McGregor's future man I want to see how he looks against Aldo I want to see what that tells us and then um, we'll have a slightly better judgment or maybe we'll have a tremendously better judgment I don't know but let's say Aldo goes in there and takes him down at will I don't expect that but let's just say that well then what do you say you would say oh my god Chad Mendez is going to chew this guy to pieces you know or he stuffs all of Aldo's shots, and knocks him out in the fifth round. And then you could say, well, that's great, but is Jose Aldo's wrestling really on par with Chad Mendez's? You know, I don't know that it is. So then, how much can you really read into that? We need to pump the brakes on Conor McGregor, not in not in doubting him, just in let's work with the information that we have, and you know, just try to be as comfortable as we can with that, and then. As we get more information we can ask bigger and bolder questions but asking these huge sweeping questions with that amount of information while helpful is just not enough but asking about gilbert and ally quick though we'll move on should the ufc do more when the ufc goes to places where something's going to affect or can affect the fights in a negative way for example like altitude should the ufc bring the fighters in early Pedro said he broke even coming in six weeks early to train. If I was a fighter, I wouldn't take a fight in some place in that unless I did everything I could to prepare correctly. Yeah, well, you know, again, so you see these fighters being like, I fight for glory, not for cash. Great, that's amazing. Or, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm Team UFC, and again, to the extent you guys have mutual interests, you should be. But, you know, if you're going to lose a ton of your money in taxes fighting in Brazil or all of your money, fighting in Mexico to prepare for those conditions um, and then you win anyway and it doesn't improve your stock at all, in the case of Pendrid, you know, you had some questions you better ask yourself about what kind of cards you're willing to fight on. And you could say, oh, well, that will negatively affect me. Well, okay, then don't do anything about it. Just keep fighting wherever they tell you and uh, and deal with the consequences. But to me, if it, if you're not making any money and even when you win and you're not making money, it doesn't help you, you know, I don't know that this is really advantageous for you. MMA in New York, I am so not keeping up with this issue at all. I'm not saying I'm over it, but it's like we're in this final stage where you're just dealing with parliamentary procedure, Robert's rules of order. I just don't care. I mean, I I care. I wanted to see it get legalized in New York. I think it's important. I think it's symbolic. I think the UFC has poured a tremendous amount of resources in there. I think it's unfair that MMA is illegal in New York, but like, I'm here in St. Louis You've got UFC Berlin tomorrow. Um, the minutia of that story, God bless Jim Jania for following it. He's the best guy to follow on it. Mark LaMonica is another good guy. You saw him on the beat talking about it yesterday. You know, I tip my hat to those guys for covering it. I'm not saying it's stupid or anything like that. I'm just saying given all my responsibilities and given, given everything else that's happening, I just do not have time to focus on that issue. And if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And the UFC will keep pushing until it does. I'm sure of it. Dana White says, the next heavyweight title challenger will be Andre Orlovsky or Stepe Miocic. Are you all right with those two being first? Sure. Who should take precedence in your opinion and why? Personally, Miocic should take a precedence. I think what he's done is a better body of work. Um, I think he's got more upside long term. But I understand. God damn. But I understand if they go with Arlovsky, given his ability to sell a card and be a known figure and help out in the pay-per-view space. So I wouldn't be upset either way. I prefer to see Stipe get it, you know, especially since he's out there hustling and lobbying for it. But uh, no, I'm not, I'm not too concerned one way or the other. All right, let's see. True or false. You want to Jacek will remain champion at least until 2017. I'll say true. Overall fighter pay will surely but steadily rise. That's well, the same. That's the same thing. The f- the phrase is slowly but surely, or slowly but steadily. And you wrote surely but steadily. <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, yeah, sure it will rise. You know, it's one of the interesting things, like they re-signed um, Chad Mendez, like this, I think it was like an eight fight deal. And, you know, like all fighters are going to get hoarded in this Reebok deal, already not all, but many. But um, I wonder, like they didn't even want him to test the free market. And he, I, got, I don't think that he, it sounds like he didn't. He just went and signed the 8-5 deal. Uh, and they made him an offer that, you know, made testing the market not even not even worth it to him. It's like, is that what it takes for fighter pay to go up? You know, a bad sponsorship deal? I guess you know between Scott Coker being like we can sign anyone we want and the Reebok money, you know, Usuva is finally coming off their pockets a little bit for uh, for some of their you know prize acquisitions. But that's how it should be, you know. That's how it should be. That's a little bit of leverage in the fighter's pocket, being like you know he didn't even have to go and shop an offer; he got one. But would have been curious to see if he did get one and shop one, you know. And we'll be seeing how happy these guys are with their decisions once it's all over. Now maybe Mendez is getting paid, but I don't know if it was if it was me. I would want to see what what I'm worth. Uh, All right. Fighters will start fighting closer to their walk-around weight after 2016. Maybe marginally. False. The current injury rate will remain about the same in the next two to three years. Probably true. The way Jose Aldo's camp handled the announced drug test was suspicious. Um, It was definitely weird. It was definitely weird. Aldo versus McGregor could reach over 1.2 million buys. Probably false, but maybe. Aldo McGregor goes the distance. That I have trouble seeing, but I don't know which way. Um, All right, the Coker interview. I thank you to everyone who watched and sent kind words about it. I appreciate it. What are your impressions of where Bellator is headed after sitting down with him for a while? I'm not sure they have any clear direction right now. Oh, I disagree completely. I, I thought that conversation... The conversation was very helpful for me um, personally. I don't know how you guys feel about his responses. I felt they were very convincing for the most part. Um, yeah, so a couple things. I thought, one, I'm glad he talked about strike force being handled the way it did, that the guys who were in – like the error in the, the judgment he made was partnering with people who – we're just in the interest of making money, flipping it and going, you know, and not not committed to a long term vision of the growth of Strike Force or the growth of mixed martial arts under his leadership. Um, how the, the difference between Showtime, you know, and Strike Force working and then Belltor being owned by Viacom, being everything in-house together changes the dynamic. I thought that was sort of an important point he made. And I think really the major takeaway I got was just the internationalism of it. And and also I was glad somebody, you know, we all know it. You know, you know it. I know it. Like the MMA industry did take a dive for a, for a few years. You know, not not saying big fights didn't happen or there weren't cool things that happened or the Fox deal is not not an important thing. Sure, it's it's great. It's all great. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying otherwise. But it did, man. Like MMA, went, you know, uh, and there's been growth in other places about you know MMA and but everyone's like, oh well, saturation is an American issue. It's not. It's really not. It's an American issue, sure. It's a Canadian issue. It's a Brazilian issue now. You know, they got less than 4,000 people to a fight night in Brazil. What? How is that even possible? Well, it's because there's just not enough, kind of the right kind of content for folks want. Folks want big fights. They want big stars. That's the case in the US. That's the case in Brazil. That's the case in Canada. And I got news for you. Eventually, as other markets get more accustomed to it, they're gonna want the same exact things. In the UK, in parts of Southeast Asia, everywhere. Now, that's going to be a longer-term process, you know, because they have they are starved for content in some other places. They don't have that same dynamic. But if they if people are really talking about this global MMA phenomenon under one umbrella or two umbrellas, you know, that phenomenon is going to happen. But I think Coker's point was as follows: like. We can get big ratings with Kimbo Shamrock and do well on Spike and get the kind of ratings that we need, which can help add dollars and can help visibility and everything else. Um, but everyone's sort of pointing internationally. You know, everyone is really pointing to, to the growth of uh, Spanish-speaking Latin America and taking advantage of any opportunity that it might be in Brazil. And, you know, obviously with Channel 5 being purchased and now being Spike UK, and obviously they have a decent stable of British fighters, obviously they just signed Paul Daly and, you know, heading over there and who knows where else they may go in the future, and, and then when you add up all of the television rights deals and whatever kind of other deals they might have in place for sponsorship agreements, he called them seven figure deals, um, maybe they're more than that, over time that larger enterprise that's happening can be you know, financially sustainable, and if you look to Viacom, they might be looking generally also to go international as well, <coughs> hence the purchase, <coughs> pardon me of channel five and of all the products that they have that can be shopped around Bellator is easily maneuverable in that way. So, you know, look, all that's easier said than done. Let's see them put on a show in the UK and let it do well. Let's see if they can put on a show in Mexico city or Monterey or some other place. And let's see if it can do well. And so these are all steps they have to take. But, um, I just, I just feel like I got the, I got the sense talking to him about Slides vs. Shamrock, like in the bubble in which we speak about it, everyone is kind of like boo and it's cool man because why would you say yes if you're in this bubble if you're in this bubble that we're in it sucks it's a, it's it, it literally doesn't even make sense in the world in which we traffic but in the in the larger outside world man like it's a completely different thing you know and even if people have the same morbid curiosity, like coker is so uninterested in your opinion about slice versus shamrock what he's interested in is you grabbing your remote and putting it on spike and you can thumbs down it or whatever but if they can hit three million views which i think they might be able to do three million right they can hit three million views with slice versus shamrock all of this that's all that is right and that that may drive you nuts and it's kind of like crazy for me to even think about and i'm not sitting there telling you you have to like it because it's gonna be a I mean, did you see those jokers at the weigh-ins? It's going to be a terrible fight. It's going to be a terrible fight. But there is such a... He is trying for maximum visibility. He is trying, I think, in the long term for maximum quality control. But he is in the business of making sure you do this. And even if you have, you know, thumbs-down opinions about it, he knows that they are ephemeral. He knows that... um, as long as there is something to look at, be it a car crash or be it the world's greatest fight, if you're gonna turn to it, he's gonna put it on. And I just think that like he has such a good understanding of how the fight game works and um, so I don't know, look if, if slice vs. shamrock bombs in the rating station, But if it beats Tito versus Bonner and it beats three million, look out, man. Look out, you know. It's that's an that's an important thing to be, uh, paying attention to. So we'll see. Um, let's see. Curious on your thoughts about the future of the Diaz brothers. Uh, well, Nick's got his hands full with the marijuana stuff. Um, and Nate, I guess looks like he might take another fight, but you know, we'll see what happens. Lawler McDonald 2. Not many people are talking about this fight due to Aldo McGregor, which is understandable. I'm wondering who do you think takes this fight and why? I like Lawler to take it. You, you seem you have pointed out Lawler seems to fade in the middle round and then gives away. Maybe he gets lost in the motion of the fight. Who knows? Personally, I see McDonald pumping a jab, keeping his range, and avoiding the power of Lawler. I don't see a phone booth fight like Hendricks versus Lawler one. I agree. How do you see it going? What do you think will be different than the first fight? I definitely think that McDonald's going to want to make this fight about range. Um, But I feel like, um, look, that's a a doable thing to pump a jab, constantly move, be on your horse, and keep someone at a frustrating range. It's a totally doable thing. But what you often see in mixed martial arts when someone tries to do that, sometimes they win. Many times they even win, especially someone as an elite of a talent as Roy McDonald, who can do all those things. Number one, that is an exhausting way to fight. Constantly moving. You guys think they're just walking around in there, man. It's it's so much. Go down to your local boxing gym and try that out. Go down to your local Muay Thai gym and try that out. You will be like, why am I breathing hard after three minutes? It's crazy. It's crazy especially when you add in the pressure of a title fight and then this gorilla, that is Robbie Lawler, trying to, you know, rip your head off your shoulders. Um, All these things can drain you. So it's an exhausting way to fight. And pumping the jab, you know, it has to be more than just a jab. You have to jab and cross and jab, cross, and hook. So that means you have to commit to a space. And I think he's... What I've noticed is that Lawler is... He might be a little bit slow at first uh, in trying to adjust around things. I don't mean he's slow from the fight. I mean slow adjusting around someone's offense. But once he does... It does, once he gets his motion in, once he gets his timing in, when the biggest action needs to be to get around what you're doing, he can pour on the offense quickly. It's quicksand right when you step in it. And so for me, um, I certainly think McDonald can make it competitive. I certainly think McDonald can win. You know, I'm not, I'm not counting on any of Faraz's guys, um, but the power of Lawler combined with his ability to make adjustments combined with he has a little bit more freedom i mean yes he's going to have to slightly work around what rory's doing but rory has to be i think a little bit singular in his approach and that's a hard thing to maintain especially if someone figures you out early i'm not saying robbie will maybe he won't at all but if he does that's a hard thing to maintain ufc fighters in Morris who would win in a jiu- jiu- jiu-jitsu match between demi and maya and Gunnar nelson demi and maya uh, although I don't know, Gunnar might, might make it competitive. Jose Aldo versus BJ Pent. I I don't know what BJ is up to these days. Jacare versus Weidman. Jacare, please. Verdoom versus Barnett. Verdoom. Big nog versus Little nog. Big nog. Although who knows what kind of state they're in. True or false? In a rematch at sea level altitude, Kane would win against Verdoom. I am going to go back and say false. Gastelum will eventually return to welterweight. True. GSP will announce his definite retirement before the end of 2015. I think so. I think he's done. Joe Schilling has the potential to compete in MMA at the same level he does in kickboxing. No, it's just too late for him to do that. But that doesn't mean he can't be a very good fighter. You know, Joe Schilling is one of the best middleweights in kickboxing in the world. Um, I was there when he beat Levin. Controversial, but I was there when he dropped him. You know, and when he knocked out Simon Marcus and... Um, just showing is a beast, you know, can he be that good in MMA? I don't think so. Carlos Condit will work his way back to another title shot. Um, yeah. And someone says, I asked you about this nine months ago. You hesitantly answered false at that time. Can you work his way back to another title shot? Maybe, maybe true. Maybe true. Uber's ruling effect on independent contractors in the UFC. Hi, Luke. Do you think the ruling from California that states Uber's independent contractors are, in fact, employees could have any effect regarding the UFC's fighter status and its possible consequences on many hot topics in mean, the Reebok sponsorship to drug testing to possible unions? A couple of misunderstood things here. Not all Uber drivers are now employees. Only one is. Just the one who sued. Which, by the way, is non-binding and is being appealed by Uber so that could and there's many different ways it can go if it makes it to the supreme court if it's of california and they rule on it a lot of things can happen here so that's not the issue um we'll see what happens with that employee and everyone's like well california it's a state court it's known to be you know very pro plaintiff not anti-business exactly but not maybe the most sympathetic to larger corporate interests as some other states may be and that part is true however there are other class action federal lawsuits pending against both Uber and Lyft, L-Y-F-T, if you ever use them. Now, I'm a regular Uber user. In fact, your boy is VIP on Uber because I use it so much, um, and I guess I'm not so much of an awful person. Because you know when you get when you get out of an Uber car, if you ever used it, you rate them. And they actually rate you too. If you don't know that, your driver actually rates you whether or not you know you're an awful person to pick up. So if you get high, if you use enough miles and you get high enough rated, you get high enough rated to match, you can use what's called a VIP drivers and an extra button that opens up for you on your app when you get approved. But neither here nor there. Um, so I'm a big fan of them. And what would happen is we talked about this before. If all Uber drivers became employees, it would really dramatically impact their business. You know, having to pay all the different yeah, I mean, Jesus, it would go on forever. All the different things they'd have to pay in terms of taxes to maternity leave to benefits to um, the case goes on and on and on. So it's unclear what would happen to Uber as a company if they had to employ all these people versus making them uh, independent contractors. But it's so far, we're very early in the process. It's not all drivers, it's just the one, but that could change depending on how how far the appeal goes on this one driver or what happens with the federal class action lawsuits for both Uber and Lyft that could change the whole dynamic. So something to monitor, but it's not exactly the same thing as, hey, all of a sudden tomorrow, all Uber drivers are now employees. That's not the case. Commentator cliches. Noting that it is incredibly difficult to talk for hours on end without becoming repetitive, I'm still curious what, if any, phrases in commentary you can't stand hearing. To give a personal example, I find Goldberg's, they are ready to do battle, face the pain, level cringeworthy. Uh, man, I am so, I am like, it's like me and pro wrestling. I don't even like talk about it anymore in a negative way. At well, least not like I used to. Because look, man, like the world moves on without your arguments. Um, people like it. You know, you just got to learn to live with it. You don't have to love it. But you know, I just try to like Not go out of my way to be an awful person all the time about pro wrestling. It's sort of the same with Goldberg now. Like there was a there was a long time where I was just like constantly hammering him for the things he said, and I just don't have the energy anymore. They're going to keep him around despite how bad of a job he does, you know. Uh, So there's lots of things he says I don't like, you know. Here we go. It's all over. It kills me when Daniel Cormier comes out and he says "embrace the grind," you know. It just drives me nuts. But you know. They're. What do you want me to say? They're, they're committed to the guy. Someone says, if you take a shot every time Kenny Florian calls something beautiful, you will literally die of alcohol poisoning, so don't do it, guys. Yeah, but Kenny's a good commentator. I like him. Machida versus Romero. This is an intriguing one for me. How do you see this fight going? A loss here would essentially put Machida out of contendership status. Yes, it would. If he wins looking impressive, he would have a claim to rematch Weidman-Rockhold winner. Um, maybe. Last one on this, what, what does a win here do for Romero? If Romero wins, Romero might get the winner of Rockhold-Weidman or he might get Array. That's probably what's going to happen because whoever wins this is going to move into that top four status. So it'll be X, And then Jacare, Weidman, Rockhold, and any kind of pairing in between there. Let's see. UFC 200. Luke, based on UFC scheduling pattern, UFC 200 should happen around this time next year. Early, true or false? So I reserve the right to change my answer down the line. But John Jones and GSP are on the card. No, false. Three title fights featuring some combo of Rousey, McGregor, GSP, Jones. False. They'll never do three again. They'll do two. One super fight, either GSP versus... I don't know about those names, but there will be a super fight that we'll all be in favor of. Kane, Jones, GSP have won their titles back by then. Absolutely false. UFC fighters have unionized by then. Absolutely false. UFC legal in New York. I'm going to say true. I don't know. Do you have any theories as to why the UFC hasn't been booking lightweights in main events in 2015? Through August, they've only done it once, Pettis versus Dos Anjos. For being arguably the deepest division in the sport, they seem to be fairly gun-shy about p- pushing their lightweight talent to the top of the cars. Here's how each division breaks down in 2015 in terms of the main events. Heavyweight, five. Light heavyweight, four. Middleweight, five. Welterweight, four. Lightweight, one. Featherweight, four. five. Bantamweight, one. Bantamweight two, flyweight one, strawweight one. Um, there is not a direct, but part slope from heavyweight down, with the obviously the aberrant one being featherweight. But I think that's a result of Conor McGregor changing things. If that wasn't the case, I think you'd see even a clear slope. Um, you know what did Cooker say to me yesterday? You know at the very end of the interview, you know all the hardcores who do this, they're all going to watch Kimbo versus Shamrock anyway, and there are people who don't care about number one versus number two. They just want to see person I like versus person I am I also like, or person I like versus person I hate, or person I know and person I know. Like, that's what they care about. That's part of what moves the fight game. And we don't have to like that, but that theory has a lot of evidence. So, Lightweight's the deepest division, and it's one of the best, but, you know, we should put, I think the better way to look at it is, to what extent do we have verifiable pay-per-view commodities in these divisions as we move down. I think you would find that lightweight doesn't have a lot. And that's why you've only seen one main event. Um, someone asked this and only got one wreck from me, but I want to ask it now, it's a long question, but I'll just say this. Is it at all concerning that there's multiple promotions leaving television in favor of fight pass? I are talking about Titan FC. It seems that there are many promotions that directly need the UFC to survive watching an interview with Coker. I was reminded of a time when that wasn't the case, when there were several small promotions that did just fine on their own. Now it seems all roads lead to Zufa. Here is what I'm a little bit concerned about. Look, I'm a, I'm a Fight Pass subscriber, and it's a, I will admit, it is slightly hypocritical of me to get on here and say, Fight Pass needs this, and Fight Pass needs that. And then they do it, and I'm like, but I don't want that. It is, it's a little bit weird when you do that. But I guess what I would say is just this, like, shoot to Brazil, and um invicta and i mean you know we'll okay shooter brazil invicta and now titan fc when people are graduating out of those promotions do you think there's any chance they go to bellator because to me making this an issue about making fight pass better is partly true yes it does it does it makes fight pass better if you're a customer you can say look i can watch ufc events at least you know the early start stages of them or ones that are directly built for fight pass i can now watch shooter brazil i can now watch um invicta and i can now watch titan fc like that is better for me as a consumer i wouldn't say otherwise however if you're just looking at this directly you're also saying well gee isn't zufa just signing up you know not direct deals but aren't they getting in bed with these feeder leagues to help them graduate people onto their own platform? Seems like that's what's happening here. Do you really think that Titan FC is going to let someone go to Bellator? You know, uh, no, I don't mean that exactly. Let them out of their contract early to go to Bellator. Or let them out of their contract to go to uh, UFC. Now maybe they do. And I don't. I'm not. I'm not at all um, familiar with their contracts. But I just have a hard time believing that this is just about making fight pass better. I think what it's about is partly making fight pass better, but also partly getting relationships with these feeder organizations so that when prospects rise to the ranks, they can get them early. You see Bellator doing it too. Bellator signing Ed Ruth before he's even fought. Bellator signing Aaron Pico before he's even fought. The game to sign prospects is now starting so early that you have to have a keen eye for talent to identify them and grab them quickly. Because if you don't, People are setting up a lot of pipelines directly to, to the Zufa organization that make pulling them out of that system more and more difficult. So, so you know, Coker & Co. have their uh, have their work cut out for them. We'll see what happens. All right. Uh, I have to go. We have to cut this chat short. I appreciate everyone's time. I am apologizing for being in my hotel room. This is, like, the worst set I've ever done this on. But um, better to do one than not do one, I think. So thank you for watching. I'm going to finish getting ready. I'll head down to the arena here for too long and um, yeah lots of coverage coming tonight. Kimbo versus Shamrock and then you got you know, J Check versus Penny tomorrow. Thank you for watching. See y'all next time. Until then, stay frosty.